Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Wednesday, January 20th. We got some bad news that we are not going to see any deliveries of the Pfizer vaccine to Canada next week. So we're going to talk about that to start off the show. And then we'll talk about some lineup changes for the Blue Jays. They are spending some serious do-re-mi on a new player. But first, Canada is not going to get any doses of Pfizer biotech uh, vaccine at all next week. We're not getting anything. And that is going to really uh, harm our vaccine strategy and our rollout. According to Public Health Agency of Canada, this week's shipment is almost one-fifth smaller than expected. And Ontario officials say that the province's weekly deliveries of the Pfizer vaccine will be cut as much as 80% over the next month. Procurement Minister Anna Anand says that she's spoken with Pfizer's CEO and doesn't expect any more interruptions to its Canadian deliveries after mid-February. But quite frankly, that's just not good enough. An opinion piece uh, in the financial um, post caught my eye. Paul Lucas is president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, He was rather the CEO from 1995 to 2012, and he wrote it. He joins the show now. Paul, I can't be happier to have you on the program. Uh, Good morning, Kelly. Glad to be here. Can I just play a clip of our premier, Doug Ford, uh, getting very upset about the fact that uh, we have not, we're not getting a delivery of Pfizer vaccine next week. Have a listen. But I'd be on that phone call every single day. I'd be up that guy's yin-yang so far with a firecracker. He wouldn't know what hit him from Pfizer. Okay, it's dramatic, to say the very least. Um, Would a tactic like Ford is suggesting even work? You were the CEO of a major pharmaceutical company. I was, and I was responsible for the rollout of the H1N1 vaccine during the pandemic of 2009. So um, I was used to getting those calls from the government of Canada because, um, you know, what we're experiencing right now with respect to this vaccine rollout is not unusual. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of issues. There have been a lot of issues. Uh, let's face it, this is a massive campaign. Uh, so there will be issues. There's going to be manufacturing issues, rollout issues, and so on. So I think we have to understand that, that that's the case. At the end of the day, Pfizer will deliver what they contracted for. It's going to be a little bit later. But uh, keep in mind that the facts are that Canada only ordered 6 million doses of vaccine by the end of March, four Mm -hmm. from Pfizer and two from Moderna. And Pfizer will deliver on those 4 million doses um, by the end of March. Um, But there will be some blips like this one. So I can understand why people are frustrated. Uh, I'm frustrated uh, because I was around during the last pandemic and we did a pretty good job of rolling out the last vaccine. Paul, let me... Can I ask you this, because you mentioned um, about the six million doses that we ordered. This is a global crisis, but it's also business, right? Does the quantity of the order affect the delivery speed? Because we're hearing that the uh, head of the uh, European community got on the phone to Pfizer CEO and said, this is not good enough. We can't have a delay like this. And they're going to be delayed by a week. We are going to have to wait four weeks. Is it is it because of the quantity? Uh, probably not, um, but I would have supported the Prime Minister getting on the phone with uh, the President of Pfizer. I mean, that's what I would have done if I had been in that seat, and that's what that's what uh, government officials did with me during the H1N1 campaign when when we hit the blips and we worked things out and um, you know we we made it happen. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the piece that's missing. You know, you have to do everything you can as a country to to stick up for your population and get the doses that you that you want. Uh, But at the end of the day, the federal government 
only ordered 6 million doses. And, you know, that's what we're going to get. And that, to me, is the big issue. You know, there's been a lot of what I would call political spin, and now it's almost become propaganda from the federal government that, you know, Mr. Trudeau stated that, you know, we worked early with companies to buy, you know, to buy early. You know, we, we ha- we're better on vaccines than just about every other country. Um, you know, we've made more deals than just about every other country. Well, none of that is true. And, you know, I think it's time for Mr. Trudeau to answer the question, you know, why do we only have 6 million doses uh, by the end of March when virtually every other major country and some minor ones are doing much, much, much better than that? And that's the que- those are the questions I ask in my in my financial post opinion piece. I want to get to I want to get to some of the, the of the content of that. But can I ask sure. you this? Because you were saying you would at the very least expect the prime minister to be on the horn with the CEO from Pfizer. Is now this is something I heard about? Is the fact that the prime minister is not called um, the head of Pfizer could it have something to do with the fact that we're in budget consultation period right now? And Pfizer has apparently submitted a brief for the government to consider about the tax that they pay because of something called transfer pricing rules. Can you give us a, a speed lesson on transfer pricing? And uh, I hear if Pfizer hasn't submitted any briefs in recent years. So it, timing is everything. And it's interesting. Is this a major bargaining chip? And it, could that be why the prime minister is not calling the head of Pfizer? Because he does not want to deal with that. So I know I've thrown a lot at you, but maybe the lesson on transfer pricing first. Well, I, I don't want to give you the lesson on transfer pricing, but I do I do want to state that, you know, companies provide these briefs all the time. Maybe Pfizer didn't provide one before. Um, but, you know, the reality is that those two things aren't connected at all. You know, the, the vaccine issue and that submission isn't connected at all, in my view, in my opinion. Um, they they wouldn't do that. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, they're just participating in Canadian democracy, uh, mm-hmm. you know, by providing their input uh, to the budget development. Everybody can do that. So, I mean, I was a major competitor of, of Pfizer's. I, you know, we fought like crazy, but I would never suggest that, you know, those two issues are connected. Okay. So the problem is, according to your opinion pieces, we haven't been able to procure enough vaccines because, and talk about it because we have virtually no relationship. Am I correct on this? Did I read this right? Um, or am I reading into your piece uh, with pharmaceutical companies? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a, you know, and I, I don't know the real reason why we don't have, have enough vaccine right now, but the reality is that the success of liberal governments in Canada have not created an environment uh, that has encouraged investment and participation by the innovative pharmaceutical industry in this country. And in fact, they've, they've implemented policies around patents and pricing that basically tells the industry to go somewhere else, and that's what they've done. So, you know, um, the industry has virtually no relationship with the federal government here other than as uh, the government is their regulator, and they are a customer, and, and that's it. They buy product. But there is no constructive uh, relationship that would lead to investment, uh, partnership, solving problems around issues like this vaccine. You know, we, we're not doing well at all. I mean, why, why aren't we doing what Israel has done? Why aren't we doing what the U.K. and the U.S. has done? Uh, we should be there, you know, and we're not. And so I I suggest that part of this is that the government of Canada has no idea how to work with the pharmaceutical industry. 
when did this begin? This began, in 19, we... this began in 1968 with Pierre Trudeau hmm. when he decided that uh, he was going to eliminate patent protection for innovative pharmaceutical industry. And that's when it all started. And uh, without, without intellectual property protection, it's pretty hard to be commercially successful. And so, um, you know, Canada was an outlier in the Western world around patent protection. And it only... It only got worse from there uh, through through the Chrétien years and uh, now with the Trudeau years again. Okay, so Pfizer cons- confirmed last week it, it is going to temporarily reduce its COVID-19 vaccine deliveries. You said that, um, you know, these upgrades happened. What? How much goes into ramping up production at a pharmaceutical plant? I know you're the CEO, and I don't know um, how much you know about the intricate workings of the plant, but... What has to happen? Do they literally have to build new infrastructure and train new people when they want to ramp up production? Yeah, absolutely. And now I don't know the specifics of this case, but if they're ramping up production, yeah, they have to basically have to move things around in the factory, make the make the uh, processes more efficient, train more people, uh, just get more throughput. So, you know, that's not easy to do when you're talking a vaccine or a pharmaceutical. Um, The quality control process and requirements are massive. So you can't do that overnight. I'm amazed that they can do it so quickly. And I think it's it's a tribute to them that they're actually doing it quickly. You know, I, I go back to the H1N1 vaccine that Glaxo produced in Canada. You know, we, we had some blips, um, you know, where the government changed the vaccine that they wanted us to make. So, you know, that, that put a little bit of blip in the process. But we responded, worked it out, got the, mm-hmm. got the vaccine out. And Pfizer's doing the same thing. And, you know, Moderna's probably going to be faced with the same issue as is AstraZeneca and J&J. All the, all the manufacturers are going to be faced with issues along the way here. Paul, you said you felt compelled to write that piece about the current vaccine supply situation when a, the federal minister of intergovernmental affairs... Uh, stated that the, we just don't have the domestic vaccine production in Canada because uh, GlaxoSmithKline closed their facility during the Harper years. And you said, no, 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 that facility is still operating. Is it possible that they could be producing Pfizer vaccine or Moderna if we needed them to? Well, um, you know, it couldn't today because it's not geared to produce an mRNA-type vaccine. But if five years ago... You know, the government had sat down with Glaxo and other companies like Sanofi Pasteur, who also makes vaccines in Canada. So Minister LeBlanc was absolutely untruthful when he said what he said. Um, but if the government had, had, had worked with the industry back then um, and had they, they had surveyed the, the landscape of what was developing in vaccines, um, you know, maybe, maybe they could have put a plan together to allow us to produce those kinds of vaccines in Canada, either through a licensing agreement or through our own production. So, you know, I chalk this up to bad planning and bad implementation by the federal government. Um, Paul, is there anything we can do in 30 seconds or less, because i got to let you go, is there anything we can do to remedy the situation we're in right now? What would your recommendation be? You were CEO of a major pharmaceutical company. You know, I'm, I'm sad. That it, it's unfortunate I have to say this, but there is nothing the government of Canada can do at this point to increase the number of doses that they're going to get between now and the end of March. It's not, it's not going to happen. Every other country's, you know, dying for this vaccine. We have a contract that calls for six million doses, and that's what we're going to get. And uh, that's where we made a big mistake. Paul, thank you very much for your insight on this. I really appreciate your time. 
Okay, good to talk to you, Kelly. Have a great day. Paul Lucas, he's the former president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline from 1995 through 2012, talking about why we're not doing better on COVID vaccines. We're doing lousy. This is not good news at all. Let's talk about something completely unrelated to uh, coronavirus, if we could take a break and talk about sports. Rick Zamperin joins the show. Rick, it's always a pleasure having you on. Kelly, thanks for having me on once again. Glad to be on the air. So the Blue Jays, they've signed a couple of new players, outfielder George Springer in a uh, free agency historic deal. It's six years. Talk about this with us because there's a lot of money going his way. Yeah, this is big. This is basically the richest contract the Blue Jays have ever given an, an individual. And that says a lot because, you know, they've had you know some pretty big deals uh, in the past, uh, most notably even last year, Hinjin Ryu getting him off the free agent list after, you know, a couple of dazzling campaigns with the Dodgers. And he was really good in his first year with the Blue Jays last season in that abbreviated season. But, you know, George Springer is a World Series winner, World Series MVP you know, three-time All-Star, so he has signed a $150 million deal for six years. And, you know, he's a big piece to the puzzle for the Blue Jays going forward in a variety of ways. He's only 31, and I know this deal is going to carry him to his, you know, year 37 or when he's 38. But he's a big bat in the lineup. He's, a you know, a 30-home run guy. Uh, he's clutch in the playoffs. He's shown that in the past. He can play, you know, center field or right field, which would be, you know, great for the Jays because having, uh, you know, especially a dominant center fielder, I think Teoscar Hernandez is going to be the right fielder, having a dominant uh, defensively stout outfield and defense really at the end of the day is important for any World Series contending team. And George Springer, you know, even in the lineup, I think, is going to make opposing pitchers think about, hey, if I got a pitch to this guy, you know, Vladdy's also in the lineup. Kevin Biggio has shown that he's a, you know, a, a good Major League Baseball player. Bo Bichette has a good bat. So this lineup, top to bottom, is pretty uh, doggone lethal. They have some work to do, and that includes the pitching department. You know, mm-hmm. apart from Hyunjin Ryu, they need to bolster that pitching staff. Okay, and are they looking at anybody right now that you've, yeah, you've got I mean, window? Mar- yeah, the marquee name out there is Trevor Bauer. He's had, you know, a pretty good major league career. Uh, you know, aside from him, there's a big drop-off in terms of, you know, who's next. So, you know, if they don't get Bauer, it's going to be kind of that tinkering. You know, we'll add a couple of arms here, add a little more depth as opposed to, you know, an all-star type pitcher. So if they don't get Bauer, and, you know, the jury's still out on whether they will or not, uh, they'll probably do a little bit more tinkering unless they go the trade route because now they have an extra outfielder. You know, do they move a guy like Rowdy Telez, who's primarily a DH but can play first base? Do they move a player like that, a Lourdes, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., for a, you know, a, a 1B or a number two kind of, uh, you know, starting pitcher? That's probably the route that they're going to go. All right. Uh, the elephant in the room is that George Springer was part of that Astros team that was caught cheating. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, do we know if he's good when he has to, to invest- play by the rules, Rick? Are you suggesting the Jays have to invest in some garbage cans around the uh, <laughs> Rogers Center? <laughs> Listen, yeah, I mean, everybody who's associated with that team, whether you're George Springer or Carlos Correa or Jose Altuve, you know, that stain is going to be with them, uh, whether they stay in Houston or, or go elsewhere. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is uh, they got penalized for it, not as harshly, in my opinion, as they should have. But their legacy certainly has been tarnished. So, you know, for the rest of their careers and even post-careers, that's always going to hang over their head. But, you know, that shouldn't be a slight on the Jays. I think they're looking at the player uh, and, you know, the, the bat and the defense uh, and the experience in the postseason that he brings. And I think this is a, a good and a smart move for the Blue Jays. Okay. Other than George Springer, they've also landed Kirby Yates for a year deal. Uh, what does he bring to the table? Yeah, you know, a depth guy, he's not going to go out and, 
you know, dazzle you with, uh, you know, a 20-win type of season, but, you know, a guy that they can slot into the rotation and count on, you know, whether it's every five days or added depth in the pen, however they want to, you know, configure their pitching rotation. So they have options. That's really, you know, when you look at their pitching staff, they have a lot of options in terms of, you know, who they can compile as a starting five, whether they go with a four-man rotation in the first month or so in the season to get, you know, Hyunjin Ryu and, you know, some of their other guys, you know, an extra start or two. So right now they have options. They don't have a lot of dominance on the mound. And again, I think that's probably the prime spot for them to improve their roster. Rick, can we turn our attention to to football news? I know we don't know who's playing in the Super Bowl yet. We'll know after this weekend. But we do know that Sarah Thomas will become the first female to officiate the Super Bowl in NFL history. This, uh, can, What can you tell us about her if you know anything at all about uh, Sarah Thomas? Yeah, this is awesome. I've been watching her career for the last number of years. She came into the league, I think it was 2015, and, you know, made a lot of noise, obviously, then becoming the first, you know, uh, female as part of an NFL officiating crew. And, you know, she's been great on the field, has has quickly earned the respect of the players, which, you know, from her standpoint was probably, you know, fairly easy because, uh, you know, once you get to the elite level, I think the players and the coaches and all the support staff realize that, Listen, if you're in this league now, you got to be doing something right. And, and she has been doing something right. And to get finally that nod to participate in her first Super Bowl is pretty cool. There's one other official that's going to be officiating the, the Super Bowl as well who's going to be doing it for the first time. So that's always a thrill for an official. You want to you know, be part of the biggest game on the planet. And uh, certainly she is deserved of this. This isn't a, you know, a token, hey, let's make her the first female uh, you know, uh, uh, official in the Super Bowl, you know, as a down judge, she has, you know, a lot of responsibilities. And let's not forget, number one, you have to be in the league for five years. And number two, you have to hit certain performance, uh, you know, targets throughout the season to even be eligible to be considered for a Super Bowl, uh, you know, um, uh, slot as an official. So, she is more than deserving as the down judge for uh, Super Bowl uh, LV that's coming up. All right. Very quickly, Rick, uh, do you have a feeling, a prediction of who's going to be playing in the Super Bowl? Well, at the start of the season, I said Kansas City and Seattle. One of those teams is gone. That's the Seahawks. The Chiefs are still in it, but there's a big cloud that hangs over Kansas City. And that's the health of, you know, superstar starting quarterback uh, Patrick Mahomes, who left the uh, divisional round game against Cleveland last week with uh, a concussion. Um, If he plays Kansas City should probably beat Buffalo, but that's not a guarantee because the Bills are playing some great football. So I'm going to stick with Kansas City. Uh, Again, Mahomes has to be playing in that game. If he's not, I'm going all in with the Bills. And in the NFC title game, what a matchup between Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, Packers and Buccaneers. Tampa Bay's hosting the Super Bowl. A Super Bowl host has never played in the Super Bowl. But I'm going with Green Bay. You know, Aaron Rodgers has had a great season. It's in Green Bay. It's probably going to be snowing. It's going to be cold. I'll go with the cold weather team at home. All right, I'm going to leave it at that. I thank you for your time, Rick. You got it. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us. If you can spare some time between 9 and noon, Monday through Friday, we're live on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hopefully you'll join us. Cheers.